Our scripture lesson today comes from the gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 2. Let's share in God's good word together. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. It has been a frightening week around here. All sorts of things have come my way. I just learned of a a young man who died on his wedding night. Children that have been diagnosed with cancer this week. Friends who have died. Some expected, some unexpected. Well, Merry Christmas. I mean, it, it is not a time where we are simply removed from the things of this world. And the scripture says, don't be afraid. Fear not. And the question for us is, is that an empty promise? Or is it really for all of us? Is it for you and for me and for all the people that you know are hurting? Because if it's not true, then that would be the cruelest thing to do to someone. Our faith is important in this season, yours and mine. Last week, we started a sermon series called Come Home for Christmas. And last week, Dr. Grail talked to us about coming home from a broken world. And it is broken. You don't have to watch the news more than about 30 seconds to see that in some way, public or private in everyone's life. And of course, it's been this way a lot longer than we would like to admit Really, all the time since Jesus and before Jesus. Jesus came into a darkened world, not one that was nice and shiny and bright. Herod, king, the King Herod, Herod the Great, I like to call him King Herod, not so great, killed all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years or under. Because he's paranoid. Not not because he was a a mean dude per se, it was just expedient. It's like, if I'm going to stay on the throne, then this is what I have to do. If there's going to be born a new king... Well, there's one way to take care of that. Just business to him. And this story is included in Matthew so that we can see clearly that God sent his only son, Jesus, into a broken world so that you can live in a new world that has no end. We do indeed need a savior. That's why we gather, because we need a savior. We need a Lord that has the power to change the universe. And so perhaps one of the greatest known scriptures in all the Bible uh, makes it clear. John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Read this next part with me. So that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. And then to put an exclamation point on it, John writes, Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world. No. 
but in order that the world might be saved through him, healed through him. The Greek word is sozo there, which means healing, wholeness, fullness. It goes along with this idea of shalom where nothing's missing, nothing's broken. Things are made right, justified. So we want to come home from a broken world. And as we do that, it's hard to do that if we're afraid to move forward. And the main stopper that keeps us from living in God's new world, God's new order is what? Fear. Sure. And, and you know this. It's simply false evidence appearing real. We think we know what's going to happen, but none of us know exactly what's going to happen. Only God knows that. And so when it comes to fear, uh, therapists will talk about appropriate fear and inappropriate fear. Right. So we, there, there are some things that we ought to really take caution about. But I love the way Bishop Williman says it. He says, while it's not wrong to fear, fear can lead us to do terrible wrong, as it did with Herod. What we need is some way to honestly acknowledge having fear without fear having us. Right? We, we've got to figure out a way to acknowledge our fear without it just overtaking our life, without it having us. And the one statement that Jesus made over and over and over again, more than any other, is simply, say it with me, don't be afraid. Say it with me. Don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid any longer. There is a God who loves you and is greater than what you are currently seeing. Jesus would say this uh, over and over again. Uh, this is one of those verses in the Bible that I try to memorize. And I, as I walk and I pray, I'll, I will simply share this. When I'm in uh, places of deep grief and, and with families that are in deep fear, this is the scripture that I go to more and more and more. And I simply can walk up and down a hospital hall uh, or into a room where someone's dying, or into a place of deep grief, and I simply remember, peace I leave with you, Jesus says. My peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. Peace I leave with you. Peace I leave with you. Peace I leave with you. I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled, friends. And do not let them be afraid. God is with us. This is the gift of Emmanuel. You say, well, what about this? I lost my job. I lost my spouse. I lost my child. I lost this. I lost all these beautiful, good gifts of God. And yes, when good gifts are lost, and they are lost, never forget, friends, the giver remains. The giver remains. And I, this may be news to you. And it may come as a shock to you. But we are truly to love the giver more than we love the gifts. We're to love the giver more than we love the gift. I read that line for the first time in a book on prayer by Richard Foster. And the thing that came to mind to me was, hey, Richard, do you know what God can do? And he can do anything. How are we supposed to love a God who can do whatever God wants? More than all the things that he can bless you with. It's a tall order. But you and I both know that if you love the things that people give you more than you love them, that's not love at all. It's something else. Something gross. It's just using. So when the good gifts are lost, and that does happen, thank God the giver remains. Now, this story continues in a little place called Bethlehem. House of bread. Bet is house Lehem bread, and it was a little town just six miles to the south of Jerusalem. Uh, if you go to the Holy Land, uh, oftentimes you'll be able to go both to um, Jerusalem and the temple area and also 
uh, over to Bethlehem. Um, they don't look the same. Uh, it, it's very different. Bethlehem is much um, more rural in a sense. Um, and you can go to a cave where they believe Jesus uh, was born and, and learn all about it. Now, Bethlehem was King David's city. Everybody knew it as that. And it's where they expected God's anointed one, the Messiah, to come into the world, the Christ. Uh, the, that God's anointed one, Messiah, Christ, it's all uh, roughly the same word to come into the world. And not just the Jews, not just Israel, but really the whole known world at that time. There was an understanding, if you look at different scholars, uh, William Barclay says, that really the whole world expected something big to come out of this area of Judah. They didn't know exactly who, they didn't know exactly when, but they were expecting something big here. And that word made it all the way to what we think is probably Babylon, all the way over modern-day Iraq. And thus began the journey of the wise men. Now, the journey of the wise men was roughly 900 miles, depending on exactly where they're coming from, from Babylon to Bethlehem. And again, depending on the scholars that you read, it could have been as long as four or five months, a long travel and, and these wise men are called wise, sometimes called magi, uh, because they were a well-educated class of people in ancient Persia. They knew things that other people did not. Some people would even call them astrologers, but it's not like astrology today. In that day, everybody who knew something looked at the stars to kind of know what seasons were coming, uh, what the tides would do, all these sorts of things. It was an education, uh, not a superstition. And so when you read astrology around this issue, it's not like astrology today. They weren't looking through the paper to see what the Virgos were up to. Okay, it's a different sort of thing. I mean, I want you to think about this. I hadn't thought about this before I was studying for this week. If they're following a star, they're probably traveling at night. And only at night. It's really hard to see stars in the day. Have any of y'all worked overnights? For a long time, week, month, two months, three months, four months, five. it messes with you, doesn't it? It's disorienting. It's a different kind of life. And so night after night, week after week, they would journey into darkness, into unknown territory. It's not just that they were working around their, you know, their home in the dark. They were going into places they had never been at night. And so what was this path like from Babylon coming from the east, right? So these folks, if you look at Jerusalem and you go east, what's east of Jerusalem? Not much, right? That's, that's what they're going through on night. And, and not just that, uh, the topography, it changes. It changes pretty dramatically. And so as you come through the Judean desert, if you look really closely, you can see these are grown adults down here. They're tiny. Because this is a harsh and unforgiving place. This is the sort of area that Jesus went to in the wilderness. And when they say wilderness, they mean wilderness. Nothing out there. Nothing's growing out there. They had to have cisterns just to get enough water to survive. Right? Because nothing's staying. It's just a dusty, harsh place. I would submit to you that these wise men were more than wise. They were courageous. And Stanley Hauerwas writes, The courageous have fears that cowards never know. They never know. Of course we're going to be afraid if we're courageous. And we'll require it. But we have a choice, don't we? We have a choice to live in fear and violence like Herod. 
Because oftentimes fear will drive you to that if it's unhealthy, inappropriate. Or we can live in faith and hope and joy like the wise men, regardless of the difficulty of the travel, of the journey. Bishop Willimon would say our problem in regard to fear is that we fear the other more than we fear the God who commands us to love each other. And thank God that's not where the wise men landed. They could have said, no, 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 no. We might worship our king, but we're, we're not going over there into potential hostile territory. Did you know that the Babylonians, the Jews, they didn't really get along? That long history. And yet they choose to, to come over and to see this new king. So we come into the story and we find wise men, we find dangerous men, and ultimately we find the savior of the world. It's great news, friends. But I wonder, I just wonder, we don't really talk about this, or, or I, I have not previously in the Christmas story. Did the wise men ever consider that their actions were putting Jesus in harm's way? Did they realize that when they talked to Herod, they were basically showing the killer where the victim was to be? They were leading him right there. And we lift them up as these great wise men. Well, that's not very smart, is it? They're going to this terrible person who has killed thousands, almost for sport, and they go, oh, by the way, we're here to see the newborn king. It's a very dangerous thing that they're a part of. The scripture says, then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. Here it says, is that true? No. My mama would say, that's a bald-faced lie. Right? Not at all. So when they had heard the king, Herod, they set out and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now they had a choice to make, another choice to make. Knowing full well that there could be some folks watching them, following them, do you give up the location or not? Do you actually go and put the child at more risk? This was not an easy choice for them you see they could not promise that this baby would not die on its own or its own causes or because of their actions they could not see the future but they went ahead anyway scripture says when they saw that the star had stopped they were overwhelmed with what joy not trepidation not fear not worry but with joy and on entering the house they saw the child with mary's mother and they knelt down and they paid him homage they worshiped him and then opening their treasure chest they offered him gifts of gold frankincense and myrrh gifts fit for a king and as they did this in pure joy in the face of god almighty in the form of a tiny child they had no idea if their celebrating would turn to mourning They had no idea what would happen the next day or the day after. They just knew the call they had on their life to find him and worship him. And that's enough. That's enough. They actually left the rest of the story to God Almighty. The king, creator of heaven and earth. And we're here today because of it. You see, God's calling on our lives, yours and mine, it will inevitably require us to risk That's faith, by the way. You can switch faith and risk, basically, back and forth, to love and to loss. You you might actually say there is no love without loss. And you can't lose something that you don't love because then it's not really lost. It's just garbage. Right? They go together. Mourning is the price we pay for loving. And the more we love, the deeper our grief. 
So whenever we're working with funerals around here and families, I'm, I, you know, let the tears come. It's simply an expression of the love that you have for those who have passed or, or the grief of what you're going through in a separation or of a child or a spouse or a friend. The more you grieve, it simply is a reflection of the depth of your love. So the wise men, they choose to go forward. They go forward without any guarantees, as we all must do, about how the story would end. They didn't know, but we know. That's the great thing about reading the Bible. We get to know the end of the story. And that's a, that's a great thing, but it's also sort of a hard thing because it's easy to just read it right on by. The incredible drama that's unfolding before us. They didn't know what was going to happen. Bishop Willeman would say, courage is not the absence of fear. No. But rather, having a reason for doing the right thing in spite of our fear. Fearing and revering and honoring something more than safety. Now, that's a word we need to hear. Because isn't it normally wisdom that, you know, your child comes to you or a friend comes to you and you're like, well, what do you think? And what do you tell them? Almost always, the safe answer. Right? Oh, well, this, this sounds, that'll probably work. Well, that sounds a little risky. The safe answer. Have you any of you all ever read a compelling novel about someone who did the safe answer? No, it's boring. And, and it's not where life is. Life is on the edges. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying to be ridiculous. I'm not saying, you know, that we should not take responsibility. We do need to do that. But if our answer day in and day out is always one for safety, then there's some question about whether we're living at all. The God who calls us, calls us forward in the midst of fear. And we revere God. See, the right ordering of fear is, right, in Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. We fear God first, we do what God says, and all the other fears have to sit underneath it. And when that's the case, life happens. Life unfolds. So wisdom is not having no fear. Wisdom is knowing when to work and when to fight and when to flee. And sometimes you do just simply need to get out of town. As the wise men did, as Joseph will need to do. The scripture says, and having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Now, in those days, dreams, they were sold out that when you had a dream, it was God telling you something. That's how they understood it, that God spoke to people through dreams. So not to return to Herod. So they left their own country and they went by another road. They're sneaking out of town, which was a good idea. And the ancient world had no doubt that God sent these messengers in dreams. And so they heeded that message. And the scripture says, now after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, not just the wise men, but to Joseph as well, in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So it's dangerous. He's got to go. Then Joseph got up. He took the child and his mother by night. You see, the story continues night after night after night. And he goes to Egypt, which was not unusual, by the way, friends. Lots and lots and lots of Jews had fled to Egypt during times of turmoil. It's very likely that Joseph and Mary would have found maybe up to a million Jews in a city like Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, It was a well-known place where exiles would go and go back and forth. It was one of the closer places they could go. And they remained there until the death of Herod. They, They had their ears listening to see what would happen of Herod because he was dangerous. And this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. So friends, Max Lucado writes, he says, you find yourself alone on the path, as Joseph did, wondering if Christ has forgotten you and your child. 
I mean, Joseph has had a rough go. He is with a woman that's pregnant with a child that's not his. He's trying to do the right thing. Now people are trying to kill him. He goes all the way to Egypt. You would wonder, am I in God's will? You're wondering. Maybe you're wondering too if Christ has forgotten you and your child. He hasn't. He hasn't. He never dismisses a parent's prayer. Keep giving your child to God. And in the right time and the right way, God will give your child back to you. And of course, it's exactly what happened with Jesus. The Savior of the world. Herod does die. And when he did die, his kingdom was divided into three parts for his three sons. Um, The first son, Archelaus, uh, in Judea. The second son, Herod Antipas, in Galilee, uh, Nazareth. And Philip, in the northeast region, um, up north over past Galilee. And those were the three areas. Now, what do you do if your dad was known as a bad dude? And you had to follow the bad dude in the capital city of Jerusalem. What do you do? Well, as one scholar put it, you have to out-Herod Herod, which is not good. So his boy, Archelaus, to prove to everybody that he was not to be messed with, he opened his rule with the deliberate slaughter of 3,000 of the most influential people in the country. Just because. And that's, I mean, that ought to take your breath away. It should. But if we're not careful, we can simply become used to terrible numbers. Like this year in 2022... 1,516 children under the age of 18 have been shot in gun violence. More than 1,500 kids. We just kind of get numb to it after a while. There are things to fear. There are realities in our world. But when Herod died, and he did die, An angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. That's smart. That's wisdom. Don't go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee where Herod Antipas was the ruler. And there he made his home in a town called, say it with me, Nazareth. We know this part of the story. See, we, we like to just start here, right? This is where we love to start the story. So that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he will be called a Nazarene. Now, let's, let's, try, to, let's try to bring it home a little bit. What do we fear, right? We, we probably do not fear uh, being on the public list of the 3,000 getting slaughtered. That's probably not our deal. So what is the number one fear, according to mental health experts? What's the number one thing? Public speaking. I better get over that one, right? Other things? you have any guesses? Spiders. Oh, thank you. Right on the cue. Right, snakes and heights. These are all phobias, very real, top of the list. Also, all the things you might find in the Judean desert. Especially if you're John the Baptist, he was a public speaker out there. But what do, what do you and I fear? Psychologists go say, well, okay, the, yes, there are phobias, but there are actually some things that we fear that will wreck our lives if we don't get on top of them. 
things like change. I used to love to hear my former bishop, Bishop Hayes, say, nobody likes change but a wet baby. (laughs) That's pretty right. We fear things like loneliness. Right? Failure. Rejection. Uncertainty. And we're going to have to get on top of uncertainty. Because that's never changing. Right? And just can't know. That's where your faith comes in. Max Licato writes it beautifully. He says, we fear coming and going and no one knowing. If we disappeared, would anybody notice? Would anybody care? Am I just a paycheck for my family? Am I just a buddy to keep others from being lonely? Or does anyone really care for me? For me. Not for what I do for them, but just for who God's made me. And we fear these things. We fear these things not only for ourselves, but also for those we love. Sometimes we can actually get past sort of these things in our own self. We do enough work, internal work or therapy work, and we're like, okay, yes. And then we have kids, or we fall in love, or we have other people that we really do care about. And there's this beautiful prayer in the Book of Common Prayer um, that you can say at night, right before you go to bed. It says this, Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night, and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ. Give rest to the weary, bless the dying, soothe the suffering, pity the afflicted, shield the joyous, and all for your love's sake. Amen. And I was reading through that prayer. I was like, oh, yes, this is so good. And then I got to shield the joyous. I'm like, what in the world is that? Shield the joyous? I mean, the joyous don't need any help. They're joyous. And then I started thinking about my own life. And I started thinking about my children. And I started thinking about this weekend. And I started to think about the trauma that happens to children at the Christmas program. This is my son, Noah. Uh, this is, he was a sheep, can you tell? Um, the masks were super scary. I don't know why we used them. And then we dressed them up all in black for their little legs and uh, cotton balls uh, for their fur. And uh, Noah's maybe four, five, six here. And all I remember is that he hated it. But he was a preacher's kid, and so he had to do it. Uh, so we thought when I was young and immature in my own knowledge of parenting. And so he stood there. The entire time, (laughs) y'all remember that? It's a little distracting, but anyway, Noah's a good kid. He tried to do the right thing. He would always try to do the right thing. That's one of the things I love about him. And and he was fearless, really. He didn't like, you know, the public speaking part and being a sheep. Uh, It was itchy and scratchy and it didn't make sense. But man, he loved to show off his muscles. He's a very strong little guy. You know, he's wiry. He's a strong kid. And, and, he, and he would love to tell you about something. Like, Don't mess with me. I'm tough. But you can tell he's not tough. Right? He's not. I mean, he loves uh, with a big heart. He loves horses. Uh, and, he, you know, he, we could never watch the, the commercials on the TV about, like, we need you to adopt a puppy. At one time, we had, like, a puppy and a cat and bunnies and hermit crabs. I mean, we had it all. And you couldn't show that kid a herding animal without... Something going on. And he got to be an eighth grader. And you all know how awkward eighth graders can be. 
uh, particularly having gone through puberty yet. It used to be a big deal in elementary school. Everybody goes on, and you're like, hey, where's the bus? I was a late bloomer. My kids were late bloomers. And so the thing that we thought, well, maybe we can rectify this, is if Noah's in band. And so he, he was in band, and he, he became a percussionist. He became a really good little percussionist. And it came time to do the marching band, and what they said was, now look, eighth graders, you're not going to be on the snare line. Um, that, that's for upperclassmen. Um, you can try out you know, for like later years, but you're not going to do that. You need to be in the pit in the middle. Uh, those of you band people, you know this. You know, you're playing the bells or other things, xylophones, or you can be on one of the bass drums. That's what freshmen do. And so we asked Noah, what are you going to try out for? He said, snare. We said, we don't think that's a good idea. And he said, that's, that's what I want to do. We said, well, at least try out for the pit and the drums so that it doesn't go so well. You've got, you know, a place. He said, I want to do that. I want to play snare. Look at that face. As a parent, you know that if he doesn't get this thing, he's going to be crushed. I mean, it's hard enough that he can't, you know, he's been surpassed in these other areas, but this is what he wanted with all his heart. So Chantel and I started making a plan. What do you do? What do you do when you pretty much know your kid's going to fail? They've told them they're going to fail. They've set them up to fail. I mean, they already told them. Like, well, who's getting the phone call? Chantel's getting the phone call. Okay, not me. <laughs> and not the eighth grader. And then, you know, then we're stuck with having to tell him. And so on the night after the tryouts, uh, he thinks he did okay. We're waiting for the phone call. So what do we do? Well, he's got a wonderful big brother, John Mark. John Mark comes. He's like, look, we're going to have to be around him because this isn't going to be ugly. And so it's John Mark, Chantel, me. I can still see it. And we're in the Taco Bell. We're getting him his favorite Baja Blast. Um, That's what he loves at Taco Bell. And we get the phone call. Chantel gets up. My heart's pounding. She's, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. We'll do that. We'll let him know. She hangs up. She looks at Noah. She said, you made it. (laughs) Now, the percussion teacher says that you're so far behind, you're going to have to take private lessons every week all summer long from him to get ready for the band. And he did. It worked for the instructor, worked for Noah, worked for us. We're like, whew. And he played band all the way through center snare all the next years and then even played in college. It was awesome. But here's the thing. How much of life have you missed out on? Have I missed out on? Because we were so afraid to even hope that something good might happen. We just, we just back up like, oh, I don't know. You see, love always involves risk. And loving again means risking again and again and again and again. And thank God Joseph was courageous enough to believe that good things could still happen. So he moves back. He moves back. And sometimes, friends, it's not just something your kid's doing in band. Sometimes it's a fight for your life. This is my sister-in-law, Kim. And we need to be able to hold on for hope for her. She just finished her sixth week of chemo on the front end of very aggressive, triple negative breast cancer. And so she posted this. um, And and she said, yeah, you can can show the church this. Because I want you to hear what she wrote. You You know what she said when she posted this? She said, the good news is... My morning routine is way easier than it used to be. <laughs> then she writes, my hair has always been my security blanket. What I've always considered to be my best feature. So to say I was scared to lose it 
is an understatement. What's funny is it's almost become empowering, she says. I'm proud to show off my bald head, to show people that I'm fighting for my life. And I may have bad days. And I may be struggling. But I'm keeping my head held high. And my spirit's up. Holding on to hope. Some of you need to be able to hold on to hope right now. I get that. My family gets that. See, joy in the midst of darkness should never be faked or performed. But it can be chosen. Kim's choosing it. Hope admits the truth of our vulnerability. And we are vulnerable. It does not trust God to keep all bad things from happening. But it assumes that redemption, beauty, and goodness will be there for us whatever lies ahead. And as Christian folks, something we never talk about is that our greatest fear is that somehow the resurrection is incomplete. And what I mean by that is that we understand that it's for everybody, but somehow we feel like it's not for us. That the things going on in our life, somehow, what did I do? Did I do something wrong? Did I not understand it? Have I not done what is needed to be done? And in the song that we sang just before the sermon, there's a part of it that goes like this. The biggest fear is that the resurrection was not complete. The biggest lie is that this life is all that there is. And so we live in a fear of not knowing that God's work is complete in us. And the problem with not having confidence in the resurrection is that we don't know in the end if we will ever live again. But I want you to know that the pain you face is temporary. The cancer you face is temporary. The disease you face is just temporary, friends. Because the scripture says, when we see him, we shall be like him. Every service of resurrection we do here. I read these words. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I am life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of hell and of death. Because I live, you shall live also. We say this together. Never forget, friends. Read it with me. Dying, Christ destroyed our death. Rising, Christ restored our life. Christ will come again in glory. That's what Advent's about. That Jesus is coming again. You're either going to go to him and see him face to face, or he's going to come to you and you're going to see him face to face. And that's good news, not bad news. It's great news. Something much bigger going on. So here's your action step. Begin now, this moment, to live knowing that you and your relationships will never die. You don't have to worry about uh, this thing that's not going the way you want it to. Because if it's not good, it's not over. Because God is good. Amen? All the time. So you can live knowing that you and your relationships will live forever with Jesus. Now what that also means is, for those of you who have some pretty nasty relationships out there, you've got some work to do. Right? Because that doesn't just go away. Right? Because you never die, your relationships never die. That's worth thinking about. And with all that I am, I'm going to ask you to ask God to protect that part of you that's courageous enough to still believe that good things happen, that cancer is healed, that marriages are brought back together, that the wayward child comes back into the home and is loved and accepted and cared for, that all the things that are broken can be made whole, that shalom is a promise of God and it is worth holding on to, nothing missing, nothing broken. 
Amen? May God protect our hearts so that we can be people of faith and trust and hope again this day. Will you pray the Lord's Prayer with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.